The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Happy to be back here on a well, relatively sunny uh, Tuesday. Uh, we have Dr. Fred Gertz with us. Dr. Fred. Uh, good to be here again. And uh, we have certified financial planners David Rudy and Ryan Repko, who work with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, let's see, I've got that. So you can call in. I'm sorry, I'm a little... It's like a pit crew when we have to change over here from the news guy to us. So it's sometimes <laughs> it takes me a little second here to get back in the focus here. <coughs> you can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. We also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. Though, Ryan, you tell, oh, it is working. Okay, so if you're on Facebook Live, we do get a number of people that uh, actually watch the show. Uh, it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor, conducting your own research, and due diligence. Well, guys, uh, Fred, there's plenty to talk about. Right. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I really wanted to get at is couple of things one is the so much money in negative interest rate bonds I want to talk about that and what it means and I've read some interesting articles that have some pretty interesting theories of why that may hang around a while uh, and then I want to get into because there's so much worry about the yield curve being inverted which just means that long-term rates are lower than short-term rates and then that supposedly portends a recession uh, at least frequently <laughs> and then it implies, and so a lot of people, since we're always fighting the last battle, seem to uh, look back to 2008-2009 crisis and wondering if we're in on that. But I read an interesting article by uh, uh, Ed Yardeni, who's really good. I think he does pretty good work. Uh, in his article, uh, they said there was, in the Washington Times reported on July 29th, the latest estimates that approximately 30% of the global government bond issues are now trading in negative territory, that is, Actually, you have to. You're paying the government if you buy their bonds, uh, which is interesting. Um, you have the 10-year Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which is the inflation-adjusted uh, cousin of the traditional 10-year Treasury. Basically, that's at essentially zero percent rate. So that's almost applying. There's no real return in that <laughs> instrument. Uh, and then the part I thought was kind of interesting. He wrote, why should the real bond yield be negative or even zero, like it is around so many right. places in the globe? And it says, the most widely accepted notion is that the real bond yield should be, and this is, I'm going to have you explain this, the real bond yield should be related to the growth rate and productivity, which is the economy's real return. And then he goes on to say, in any event, productivity growth has been turning up over the past few years, but productivity has been growing faster in the U.S. and G7 economies. What uh, is there any way a layman can understand that? That you know, when, or is that well, maybe well, too I, technical probably, for even the show? It's probably not uh, layman. Probably is there anyone, anyone can understand it. Is uh, no one knows exactly what the reason is. Obviously, one part of it is the fact that uh, inflation expectations are very moderate now. So that's one thing. Uh, there's another issue, which is kind of a technical issue, which um, is kind of an aside here. Um, people maybe ask themselves, why would someone? Uh, uh, take a negative interest rate when you could just deposit your money in a bank or something of that sort. And the fact is, for huge amounts of money, you can't insure uh, by just depositing in a bank that those uh, deposits are going to be guaranteed. So buying a bond from the government is a way of, in a sense, guaranteeing it that you couldn't do otherwise. So that's one reason why people would pay. In other words, it's better than a potential loss if you're right. fear of losing money, right. you know, if, if that's the safe haven. Right. Um, and, but again, the... Uh, uh, the growth rate obviously is more than that. You'd expect this to normalize at, at some point, but uh, we've been talking about falling interest rates for 20 years now, and everyone says, well, they can't fall any further. So, and that was really uh, emphatic about uh, six months ago or so, and now they're actually falling again. So it's, it's really a, a kind of, um, of um, unsolved uh, mystery about the economy because right now we have huge deficits uh, being run at the federal level, and um, 
close to zero interest rates, and yet there's no inflation. So that's sort of the puzzle, and I don't think anyone knows the answer to the puzzle right now. He goes on to write that uh, demography is destiny. The geriatric trend in global demographic profiles does support a case for negative nominal and real interest rates if the trend leads to a combination of slow growth and deflation. That's if deflation reduces the value of assets purchased today. And then one final thing, negative interest rates on the debt Excuse me. Might reflect the voluntary self-extinction of the human race attributed to the collapse of fertility, fertility rates around the world. Dwindling populations, particularly of younger people, will put downward pressure on real asset prices because there will be less demand for goods and services they provide in the future. It's interesting. I hadn't really even contemplated that, but there's part of that that intuitively sounds sensible. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's sensible to an extent, but whether that, that makes them negative or not, I think it's an explanation about why interest rates are low, but not why they're negative. The problem now, though, is that uh, the, the hope in the, in the past has been that uh, developing countries, which have higher population growth rates, would kind of make up for the slack. and that may or may not be happening right now. Uh, and again, two of the uh, major countries now, China and Japan, both are not uh, expected to grow a lot in population. Japan's actually declining. So uh, the the old story was, well, in the United States or France or wherever, there may be uh, a growing number of aged people, but you simply don't invest there. You invested in someplace else, and, and someplace else now is probably getting tougher and tougher to find. I think it is, uh, but it's... it's uh I mean, it wasn't three or four months ago people were talking about a 4 to 5% 10 year treasury, and people right. were worried about that, and suddenly we're back down to a 1.5% treasury. One thing's for yep. sure, it seems to me at least, I know maybe it's not for sure, that our interest rates are somewhat tethered to international rates, right. and those rates are negative to zero. Yeah, there and is it seems actually, like that tether is tightening right. a bit. And there's also uh, <coughs> uh, slowing growth and maybe even uh, closer recession in some foreign countries, which may have an effect. The other thing is it's kind of an odd thing. You usually think of the Federal Reserve and the uh, Treasury working together, but now to a certain extent the Federal Reserve is trying to offset the damage done by uh, the trade war issue that's uh, driven by by uh, President Trump. So they, in the uh, a normal kind of situation, uh, you, you would hope they would work together, but now they're trying to offset the uh, economic impacts of uh, reducing trade by having lower interest rates. So to, to what's your take on, it's certainly this, I, I will call it a war on trade, uh, is certainly, uh, you know, sped up. It's certainly yeah. getting, uh, you know, it's increasing. Yeah. At an increasing rate, it seems like this tit-for-tat maneuvering. Yeah, and, uh, and is both, both sides, too. It's kind of a strange thing if you ask who are the proponents of this. Well, one is Elizabeth Warren, the other is uh, Trump. So you have both, both, so you say two both extremes. Uh, but, but I think the, the thing that, again, uh, uh, Trump doesn't want my advice, doesn't want anyone's advice, but uh, negotiating a trade deal is not the same as negotiating a real estate deal. A real estate deal, you're dealing with one person. You can make threats and demands and all kinds of things. And once it's over, you go right along and back to where you were. But when you're negotiating a trade deal, you can't say on Friday that we need to withdraw all our business from China, and then right. on, on Sunday say, well, I was just uh, uh, threatening, and it may not actually happen. So you can't go back and forth all the, all the time on these issues without causing a, a degree of uncertainty, which is really damaging for the uh, the economy. So again, a real estate deal, no one cares whether the, the seller and the buyer are on, on edge about whether it's going to go through or not, but when the whole economy, both the United States and uh, other countries are on edge, that really makes a difference. So it sure seemed to me that that is a creating a additional uncertainty. And if I'm thinking if I'm a CEO of a Fortune 100 or 500 business, it's certainly making, or maybe the CFO too, it's certainly, which is the chief financial officer, it's certainly make it, making it hard to do any long-term planning, isn't it? Yeah, you're not going to say on, on Wednesday, I think I'll build a new steel plant or hire more people or buy more machines, and then two days later, uh, that's off and you're not doing it and another week you're you're doing it so we have this kind of weekly volatility based on uh what seems to be a kind of bargaining is there a uh, basic confusion about the idea that countries really don't trade with each other individuals trade with each other it's really you know if i buy my lexus you know my i'm the one trading uh, with lexus it's not really america trading with uh, china or you know japan or whatever yeah they're they're Allegations, probably some some of them true about China behaving in uh, less than uh, uh, good ways, but a lot of that has to do with the uh, 
the uh, theft or transfer of intellectual property improperly, which is not really a trade issue. And some people, if you're trying to put a good face on Trump's uh, uh, maneuvering, you could say, well, maybe he's arguing about uh, terrorists when he really wants to get them to stop intellectual uh, theft. But I don't think that's really the case. I think it's more just the basic uh, mistaken belief that trade somehow is uh, disadvantageous to both people. And again, like you said, it's, it's trade between people, and uh, all trade to a certain extent is voluntary. So if, if you and I trade, I sell you something and you buy it, we're both coming away better. How do we know that? Well, if, if we weren't coming away better, we wouldn't engage in the trade. So again, trade is mutually advantageous. There, there are issues about who gains and who loses from it in terms of not, not every single person gains uh, when, when we have open trade, but it certainly it's good for the economy overall. And as we see, uh, you know, two years ago, you go around and ask people, uh, what about international trade? And they say, well, it's really uh, hurting our economy. Now, you'd have to go a long ways to find someone who says that uh, reducing trade's a, a good idea. Farmers, uh, U.S. manufacturers who want foreign imports as part of their production process are, are all being harmed by this. Well, it's, I think it, to me it's going to be the case that he's uh, President Trump is either the best poker player on the planet or this is going to really get ugly and fast and you know it's going to just blow yeah. up uh, in his face and in our face unfortunately well, it's not even clear case, i'm not sure that's going to happen but yeah. i have concerns about that it's not even clear what a good deal is uh, a good deal uh, is not necessarily having china agree to buy a bunch of stuff in the united states right. they don't want it's better to have them buy whatever they want and sell us what we want and have us sell to other places in the, in the world. So again, a, a deal is better than a no deal, but a, a deal is not necessarily going to be better for the economy. It seems like we are conflating, or at least uh, some people in the administration are conflating this idea of technology theft, et cetera, which I think is universally agreed that that's a real problem, right. uh, particularly when dealing with China. It, and maybe trying to do that through trade is just, uh, yeah. you know, that seems like these are two different and you've said it. There's two separate issues and probably ought to be negotiated separately right. and differently. And, again, it's not that uh, you said advisors in the White House. It's really advisors in the White House. Everyone in the White House uh, is against this except, uh, except for Pete Navarro, for right? Pete Navarro, yeah. <laughs> one, one, one economist who's probably the only economist in the world who uh, believes that trade is disadvantageous. So a lot of people are worried that this, uh, you know, that is kind of leading to this uncertainty, which is leading to – potentially a recession, which is being signaled by this inverted yield curve. And, you know, is it going to be like 2008? And I'm starting to see the articles pop up. I just saw one this morning that we're going to have a Lehman Brothers type of thing in the next week, I think he said. Well, no, Uh, we didn't, uh, no one predicted the uh, uh, severity of the, or or few people uh, predicted the severity of the 2008 situation. But Again, I think uh, there's no particular reason to believe if we have a recession, it would be anything other than a a normal downturn, which happens every, used to be every five or seven years, now every 10 or 11 years. So if there were a recession, it was not necessarily a banking crisis and and, uh, the the, uh, government having to step in to support the capital markets, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, we don't have, I look at the dissimilarities, Uh, we don't have a housing bubble that was $6 trillion overvalued. If, If you use cash flow and rents, kind of capitalization yeah. models that clearly was a an overheated basically also policy driven i think yeah. but regardless and we don't uh, have a sector like uh, in the uh, late 90s uh, the tech sector was a similar we had situation. A, right the s&p 500 had a, a price to earnings ratio of around 30 times earnings uh, we're a third lower than and the that nasdaq now. had uh, oh, 100 times earnings yeah. practically uh in fact 10 percent of the stocks in the new york stock exchange traded at 100 times earnings uh, so obviously it's not like that today. And then I think the banking system, the much better capital structure and banks, uh, it just doesn't. And we don't really have the aggressive mark-to-market accounting that really fed into that vicious death spiral. That all those things combined in 2008, 2009, looking back, say, yeah, it kind of is a setup for a real vicious down cycle. Uh, I don't see. I mean, we seem to be absent all those things. We right. seem to have a reasonably strong economy. We have much look. And then if we go back to prior recessions, even 87, it was a much different t- environment yeah. from an interest rate well, the standpoint. Well, uh, the, the 1991 and the, uh, the 2000 uh, recessions were very modest compared to this recent one. So, again, we also probably should distinguish between a slowdown and a recession. The economy probably is slowing down. 
Uh, but a slowdown is not the same as a recession. A recession is where the economy is contracting, uh, a slowdown where it's not growing as fast as it was was previously. So it's natural that we'll, we'll probably have a slowdown. The other thing which we have to remind ourselves of is that uh, we're not running a machine like a, a, a airplane or something where we can adjust the, the, the controls a little bit and go up or down or, or whatever. Uh, we don't really have this, uh, this kind of uh, day-to-day um, stability. So fine-tuning is really a, a kind of silly idea, but we're still we're doing that. If the Fed reduces interest rates by a fourth of 1%, that's really nothing, but it, it, it's suggest they're trying to fine-tune the economy. It is kind of amazing. I think we continue as a society to underestimate just how complex capital markets and how markets work and the billions of decisions on a daily basis that have to seem to come together to make the all non-planned, really. Right. Uh, And to think that, you know, it's kind of like fatal conceit that we can go in and tinker with these things and make them better. It's certainly an interesting environment. It certainly doesn't remind me of 2008, 2009, or even any of the past recessions, even if it was early 80s. We had much, you know, they took interest rates to 19% to shoot inflation in the head. Uh, 87 was different. We had much higher interest rates than today, some closer to 6%. Now we're talking about a 1.5% 10-year treasury. Uh, You know, it seems like everything's missing for doesn't mean it can't happen, though, right? Well, I, I, I don't think it's still just, horrible things can yeah. happen, and we just didn't see yeah. it coming. So, well, I don't think we're. Uh, I, I think there obviously there will be a recession at some point, some time. Most people think it won't be this year, and a higher probability next year. So it's not that there won't be a recession sometime in the next few years, but the recession is unlikely to be the magnitude of the uh, uh, 2007 to 2009 situation. Those are. Uh, Though I do tell clients, just because I have my theories doesn't mean we can't start one tomorrow, just like it for different reasons. But they do seem to be kind of once in a lifetime, or at least an investor's lifetime situations. It seems like earnings from a corporate America standpoint, they have slowed down a bit. They've kind of dialed them back, but they're still positive. But for 2020, it's still kind of the consensus that earnings will rise. So really, we start thinking about next year already. It's a discounting mechanism, and kind of the consensus is earnings will be up 11%. So, I mean, that's a pretty positive sign. That's subject to, uh, you know, to change. And then, of course, we still have a really strong dollar, and they say that's hurting American companies in some ways. You want to explain that, how well, a rising uh, dollar? Uh, sounds uh, like a rising dollar yeah. to most people that. We want a strong dollar, but how does that impact Well, it's corporate different from America? an individual uh, versus the uh, country. A strong dollar means that if you buy uh, foreign goods, uh, you're buying them with dollars, which have more value in foreign countries. You can exchange them for uh, foreign currency at a better rate. So if you're traveling, going on a vacation in uh, Europe or Asia, a strong dollar is advantageous. If you're buying something from foreign countries, it's, it's advantageous. But on the other hand, uh, uh, the other side of the coin is when you try to sell things, uh, American goods are more expensive. So a uh, 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 strong dollar then means it's more difficult for exporting goods from and from the And States. half of the standard force, five, the top biggest 500 companies in America, half their revenues and sales come uh, outside right. of the U.S. So it really kind of means if, if my sales internationally go up 5%, but if our currency goes up 5%, I really, yeah. I really have zero increase in sales. Yeah. because That's, that's awesome. one of the reasons why uh, uh, for a while uh, international stocks were doing well because of the, uh, the fact that uh, you know, the dollar was weakening. Yeah. Weakening. Uh, so again, it's hard to, uh, again, people probably are confused. You might think, well, a strong dollar is good, a weak dollar is bad. And the answer is a dollar is a price that goes up and down, and there's no particular uh, level that's uh, the, the ideal one. Is simply, Unless you're China, then you set your own. Right. right? <laughs> but you're right. It's just, again, it's that voluntary exchange every day, every second of every day right. is determining the price of the value yeah. of one currency versus another. But uh, uh, obviously a high-value va- uh, uh, high dollar uh, makes it difficult for exports. A really weak dollar means there may be something wrong with the economy, like Argentina or Brazil in the past, so you don't want to a dollar that's uh, plummeting, but on the other is hand, this what you economists sit around and talk yeah. about when you're all together? Well, actually, not, not much. Uh, monetary <laughs> economics is really uh, complicated, and uh, it uh, changes, and, doesn't it, yeah, uh, it from uh, administration to administration? Right. But certainly, over a decade or two, well, you can really have pretty radical shifts in monetary theory. Yeah, right. And also, the uh, what used to be uh, abnormal now has become normal again. <laughs> Twenty, thirty years ago, uh, people would say we can't we can't continually run a 
a trade uh, deficit. We can't continually uh, run a, a huge deficit at the federal level, yet we're doing that, and the economy seems to be it's easier, uh, surviving. It's easier at low interest rates. Yeah. Uh, is, it, why, why, why are we not issuing 100-year bonds or perpetual bonds in the yeah. U.S. if we can well, do that it, at 1% uh, or 2%? It, it's probably more an institutional thing. But again, uh, in the past, we've talked about uh, the short-term interest rate being negative, which is uh, right. not surprising. But now we're talking about uh, in the United States, uh, maybe up to 10 years, other places, maybe 30 years of uh, basically zero interest rates. Right. If you have that, why not issue your debt for yeah. very long term? It's not, not as an asset play. It's just more of an insurance policy right. against rising interest yeah. rates. Uh, I, I don't even know if there's any talk of well, anybody you know, doing is, that I mean, in there is, The other issue is if we really do have an infrastructure problem, borrowing money at zero and investing it in a positive return infrastructure is a pretty good, pretty good deal at this point. Okay. Well, now we're going to switch to a little bit on get to retirement planning. Of course, at Rudy Wealth Management, that's kind of <laughs> that's our niche. That's what really it's. We talk everything retirement. That's that's our language, and so the guys wanted to talk about that. And retirement is not an easy process as far as you know trying to do the planning for it. It can be rather complicated. But it seems like the when we really think about the critical time period, it's between the fifties and seventies. There's a lot of big decisions that are going to get made. I know that Paul Jr. wrote a, recently wrote a blog about this, about the important ages, and I would call them stages also, of retirement, uh, which you can get at RudyWealth.com. Um, the first is age 50. So that's kind of like when Paul was writing about age 50, and, and frankly, I haven't read it. Uh, you know, you guys write a lot of blogs, so I can't read them all. Uh, <laughs> the first one is 50, so Ryan, uh, and then we'll go to a call here just in a minute, but I'm going to tee you up. What? What is the trigger about 50? Well, at age 50, there's a, a catch-up provision for any of your qualified accounts, which would be your 403B, your 401K, your IRAs. It simply allows you to start contributing more or saving more to those types of accounts once you've reached age 50. I think the mindset behind it is probably for most folks, not everyone, but you may have been spending more in your younger years. You have kids. It's harder to save. It's just a simple fact. And as you get to age 50, the government gives you the allowance to then contribute more into those accounts. And for a 403B and a 401K, you can contribute uh, $19,000 a year uh, up until that age 49. And then once you hit that magical 50 year, uh, you can start adding an extra uh, 6000 per year. So you have a total amount of 25000 you can contribute in your 401K or a 403B. It works the same. And then for the case of an IRA, uh, normally, you can contribute $6,000 per year, and there's a $1,000 catch-up to allow you to co contribute 7000 total once you're 50. Okay, we're going to we're gonna go to that in a minute. We're going to head back to that. Uh, we're going to take a call in a second. Um, the next thing I'm going to ask you is kind of when you're halfway through your little perk in 401k accounts uh, that you know a lot of people uh, that are thinking about retiring, particularly on the early side, might think about. But we're going to go to Stan. Stan? How are you today? I'm okay. Thanks for letting me talk on the air here a bit. Uh, you're talking a bit about now, just a year, bit. Uh, Go ahead, Stan. Well, you've got, I know. what is it, 30 minutes I can talk? Well, <laughs> I, uh, Stan, I think there's, there's probably eight hours you could talk, but go ahead. Well, I'm just poking at you a little bit. That, that's true. I'm just poking at you. I'm teasing, too. That's okay. It's all good. Anyway, uh, you're talking about having 100-year bonds. Uh, you probably remember that back in the late 90s under the Clinton administration, we stopped selling the 30-year bonds. Right. And we were on track to have a zero national debt within 15 years. Uh, but that was blown out of the water by the Republicans. And, you know, I, I, I really think that that's something that people need to think about. Which part, um, Stan? The, the, those darn Republicans are issuing long-term bonds. The Republicans running the national debt up. Well, Every think, penny of national debt we have right now is due to Republicans. Well, I think there's a lot of people would argue with that. I think it takes both sides to vote for a lot of these things, Stan. I think they're equal opportunity spenders, but I would agree with you. And looking out historically speaking, the Republicans do a finer job at spending. As far as amount spend, they do tend okay. to spend more. That's that, that's good. How about how about this? Um, uh, 401ks, as when I was uh, in the business, I had very, very, very few people that could do $2,000 a year. 
maybe it's just because I dealt with much uh, lower income people, but I had very few. So when when it said that we can have uh, a a, a contribution to your 401k of $19,000 or whatever it is, that that really just is out of most people's reach. Yes, Stan, but let me let me give you my experience for 35 years of dealing with, I call them the millionaires next door. I think of how many clients I have that worked at Kraft since they, if they graduated from high school or right out of high school, put in their 30, 35 years, lived in a modest house the whole time, were frugal and they save money. I don't know how much they saved in any given year, but so I would agree that for most people, the concept, I think that's fair to say, Fred, uh, for most people, ability to save 19,000 a year is probably out of reach for a large number of people, but it doesn't mean they can't save 1,900 or 2,900 or 3,900. There's always an, look, and, and I know depending on how you grow up, what your career path is, it's tougher some people have a tougher life struggle than others no question about it but every, you're, i see you're every absolutely right on that the, s- the magic of compound interest is what uh, makes the millionaire next door and i've seen it walks into my office once a week at least somebody who's done it there you'd look at them and thought how did this person that in their best year never made more than thirty-five thousand a year and i'm not making fun of that i'm just saying that was just their life raised two or three children uh, educated, maybe some of them or all of them, uh, and yet they walk in with seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars from their four hundred one k plan. Part of it was a match, of course. Part, you know, there's that going on too. But most of it, most of the time, is just slow, steady uh, accumulation and deferral and spending, uh, putting it aside before it hit their income stream and letting, as you said, stand the magic, the pure magic of compounding. Uh, with right. it, with the proper investing, and, and, and that's another issue. Uh, can anybody can do it? But I would agree. I think it's fair to say. Go ahead, Fred. There's another uh, uh, way to play this. Uh, people may have accumulated assets outside of uh, qualified plans, and you could convert those assets into a qualified plan. And even though you don't have, you're not generating ten or fifteen thousand dollars every year. You may have enough to do that for a few years sure. to get from a. a outside uh, situation to an inside situation with the 401k or IRA or whatever. But we know most people, uh, for whatever reason, have a tough time saving because when half the people that draw a Social Security check, when that's 100% of their income for half the people, it tells you that there's a whole part of society that for whatever reason, uh, I'm not going to be name political reasons necessarily, some of it's just life is tough and, you know, and, and for certain occupations and certain people. Uh, so it's a reality, but I've seen an awful lot of people stand do it on very modest means. And I've seen very people that had high incomes spend a lot of money, and they still dart like minnows on a treadmill because they're so nervous. Yeah, that, I agree with both of those uh, comments, and I hope you guys have a great day. All right, Stan, thanks. You know, the other thing I think I'd add for the lower-income people is that you don't need to save nearly as much uh, to replace your income. So. First and foremost, Social Security is going to replace a bigger portion of your paycheck. What do you mean by that? Well, Social Security, the way it's designed is that it basically replaces a higher percentage of lower income thresholds. So the the benefits are based on your, it's called average index monthly earnings, but just think of it as like inflation adjusted earnings. Yep. And there's tiers. So it's like the first tier, they replace 90% of your inflation adjusted earning. Up to a certain up level. To, up to a certain level. And then it tears down from there pretty quickly, pretty substantially. Right. And those are called um, bend points. But. Right. So Social Security will replace a bigger portion. And then the remaining portion is going to be a lot smaller. So you may not need this giant investment portfolio if you only need, you know, ten dollars or $15,000 a year from your portfolio to supplement your Social Security income. So in simple so, terms, someone who's historically inflation-adjusted made six figures, 100000 a year, and spends seventy five is trying to replace maybe seventy five thousand dollars of which a smaller amount is going to come from social security right. on a relative basis, so they actually have to uh, increase their savings beyond the the person that has the lower earner as far as what they need to save on a replacement basis yeah, so I think that you know the takeaway is just don't be dismissive of oh well, I can't save anywhere near these maximum amounts. Well, most people don't need to. 
And I think this is part of this retirement planning because uh, we'll a little bit later, if we have time, I'm going to go into a couple of surveys and it's just a lot of people let a lot of things get in the way, but I know life can be tough. Getting back to retirement, now we're in our mid-50s, Ryan. What is the one thing that people might not be aware of uh, if they're contemplating um, early retirement, maybe before 59 and a half, that they might want to think about? Uh, so this is what we call, I think, the golden 55 rule. So at age 55, uh, if you have a 401k or a 403b plan and you separate from service, which could be any number of things, if you get laid off from work, if you're fired or if you quit, or if you just simply choose to retire at that age if you have the resources to do so, you can take withdrawal from your 401k or your 403b without incurring the 10% penalty, which is normally assessed to a 401k, or I should say like a, a IRA, if you take the money before that age 59 and a half. So you have so, to be 55, though. So you must be age 55, and you must separate from service once you've reached age 55. And assuming you meet those two criteria, you can then, again, take the money out of your 401k or 403b without being applied that 10% penalty. You still, of course, have the uh, taxation on any distributions. Right. That's always the case. But you don't receive that extra 10% penalty for an early distribution. And so. And I would add, I don't think a lot of people are aware of this rule just based on what I've seen talking to people who are coming into our office. And it's easy to make the mistake of, oh, I'm, you know, if you're retiring earlier, if you're laid off and you're going to stay retired or whatever, the, the like reflex answer is, oh, roll, roll over your 401k to an IRA. But this is a reason why you may not want to just automatically roll your money out of your 401k into an IRA. Cause if you do that, then you're going to have to wait till 59 and a half to get your money out penalty free. Yeah. There are some other paths to go if you have an IRA, but That's it's true. really there's a lot of constraints. More it's, it's somewhat complex, and you can really make mistakes. So ideally, if you think you're going to retire before 59 and a half, and you're in in a qualified retirement plan, you want to make sure you talk to an advisor before you do any rolling over. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's also a double-edged sword. Uh, you can take the money out and buy a uh, a boat or something too. So it's, it's, <laughs> right, it's not you have to. You lose the discipline of the uh, 55 limits. So. Yeah, some people need those forcing mechanisms <laughs> to, to keep them responsible, but assuming you're going to use the money responsibly. Yep. And yeah. then there is that 59 and a half age. So once we're getting, we're talking about our being in our 50s, now we're in the last year of our 50s, and then, then, then it does change. Yep. So at 59 and a half, you, you can take your money out of your 401k, your 403b, or your IRA uh, clear. You don't have that 10% penalty, but you can take the money out starting at that age. Um, and one thing I do want to add, just going back to the Golden 55 rule, is there are planning mechanisms. So if you have maybe a couple of 401ks or 403bs you've acquired from maybe working at different companies over your entire career, there may be the opportunity for you to consider rolling your old 401k, your old 403b into your current plan so you can take that money and allow it to then be applied to that age 55 rule because you're not able to use a former 401k or a former 403b money at age 55, it has to be that current one. So that's a really good option for folks, provided your plan allows roll-ins from an outside plan. Is there a window about how much time you have to do it once you separate? Uh, I think you have to do it before, but although I don't, I can't say 100%. So yeah, I mean, you want to do it. You want to make sure that you're 55 in the year that you're going to fully separate in order to take advantage of that. I mean, that's the key thing. And the key thing is to talk to your CPA or your financial advisor just to make sure that you're following the rules exactly. But just, it's important to know that there is this golden 55 rule, <clears throat> which is really centered, centered around for certain qualified plans, 401ks, 403bs, et cetera, that allow you to retire early before 59 and a half, as long as you reach the age of 55. So it's a planning strategy. Uh, then we move into the 60s where Social Security and Medicare suddenly become a factor, David. Uh, Social Security, what do you find people's views of when they think it starts as opposed to, well, what do you think the most common touch point is? Right. Well, the earliest age you can claim Social Security is age 62. So I think at the very least you want to start thinking about analyzing when you're going to claim Social Security at that age because um, I guess there's a chance you could claim it right at 62 and that's what most people do just to be honest i i pretty sure there's data on that that most people claim at 62 um the downside to doing that is then your benefits are reduced so you get to start your benefits earlier but depending on when your full retirement age is which for most people nowadays is 66 to 67 somewhere in that range um it could be you know 25 to 30 percent less than if you waited just till your full retirement age and it could be 
even quite a bit less than if you waited until like age 70. And if you're around 60, 60 years old now, your full retirement age is going to be around, what, 66 and a half-ish? I think so. So it's based on age. So if you were born between 1943 and 1954, it's 66. And then it scales up in two-month increments for every year after that. Okay. And then if you were born after 1960, it's 67. Okay. So, so we're getting to the phase where most people are going to be at 67. Okay, so looks like I have to wait till. Well, I don't have to wait, but it looks like full <laughs> retirement age is beyond sixty-six for me, Fred. And explain to people uh, this idea. I know it really wasn't part of what we were going to talk about today, but I think it's so important when you talk about it. People seem to relate to it. This uh, t- uh, waiting, if you can, the delaying your social security maybe till even for one of the two of a, of a married couple, maybe the higher earner to age seventy. Uh, you talk about how that offsets some of the normal risks when you think about retiring. Yeah, so the way I think of it is what's the worst case scenario for a retired investor? It's high inflation because now you have to basically withdraw more from your portfolio to fund your lifestyle. Um, Low investment returns or a poor sequence of returns, just bad returns in the beginning, and a really long life. Well, what are things that Social Security helps with? Well, it helps with all those things because it increases with the rate of inflation. It hedges against high inflation. So that's that much more of your income that is going to be perfectly uh, going in lockstep with inflation. Um, It hedges against poor returns because if investment returns are really bad, it's nice to have this Social Security income stream that's bigger. You're relying on investment returns less from your portfolio for, for less of your income. And then it also continues for the rest of your life. So, and then you even live for the spouse, be, uh, there's some longevity insurance in, in that way, isn't there? Yeah, because you're, what happens is at the death of the first spouse, assuming you know you've got two who are eligible for Social Security, that surviving spouse is going to get the higher of the two benefits. So, if one person delays and their benefits bigger, and then they die first, or if they don't, if the other one dies first, that's that surviving spouse is going to have a higher benefit. So. It's just, it's like it it hedges against all the things that really are kind of tough for investors. So all the things people worry about as an investor are basically a part of the cure is uh, delaying your Social Security as long as you can stand it. Right. And then the obvious risk that you run is, okay, I'm delaying Social Security and then I die before I even get benefits. And then you got nothing. And so that's that's a major concern for people and that's what people um, that... You know, that's what keeps them from doing this. And I think that's why we see so many people almost default to claiming it early or as soon as possible because of this fear of what if I've I've paid in all these decades of hard-earned work and I get nothing from it. And I think that's kind of what, you know, psychologically people get nervous about and they just take the, the earliest they can to start receiving an actual dollar in their bank account to show that they... They got something out of Social Security. Right. And the way I look at it is you want to look at the odds. It's like, okay, well, what's the likelihood of that happening? Yes, it could happen, but it's a very low likelihood. And am I going to make a choice that is suboptimal the vast majority of the time so that that I'm better off that 1% of the time? I don't think that really makes sense. Plus, the other thing I look at, which is a little bit morbid, but it's like, you know, I'm going to be dead, so who really cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I, it's it's unfortunate, I guess, for your heirs because you spent more money along the way. But for most people, that's not their number one priority is just leaving as much money as possible to their kids. So that's what you mean by who cares? You're dead. You're saying if you delay it and use up more of your assets in the meanwhile, you know, me. sort of to, to, to live on until you get Social Security, it just might mean if you do... If you do wake up on a cloud early, it might just mean a little bit, you know, fewer assets for the kiddies. Right. And halfway through, since we're talking about mid-60s, then there's Medicare. Yep. So that's age 65. Medicare for all soon, Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's age 65. Um, But you can actually apply basically anywhere in the seven-month window. It starts three months before your 65th birthday, includes the month where you turn 65, and then it's three months following that. And so I think just for practical purposes, it makes sense to apply somewhere in the three months beforehand just to make sure that you get switched on to Medicare benefits basically as soon as you can. And then and it's even if you're not retired, you have to do a part of it at least. I'm sitting there reading notes, so I'm okay. sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. I unplugged here. So even if you're not retiring, you still have to at least get one part of Medicaid, Medicare if you're 65, yeah. yes, because yeah. that's going to be integrated with your employer's right. plan. Right. 
you, you don't want to not apply for at least the basic part of, of Medicare at that point, even if you are working. Your employer is going to be uh, very unhappy, and you'll be unhappy <laughs> because now we're talking about potential penalties that are ongoing uh, if you don't do that. So when people think of Medicare as I'm retired, but even if you're not retired, as Fred said, and you're working, it's still a Medicare issue when you turn 65. And if I can add something here to your point, uh, Fred, so if you work for a company that has 20 or fewer employees, Medicare at the age of 65, even if you're still working, is the primary payer of your health care. So you do need to make sure that you're enrolled in Medicare at age 65, even if you're still working, provided, of course, you're working for a firm with 20 or fewer employees. If you're for a, working for a larger company, uh, you're, you uh, can still use your primary insurance that you have through your company. So it, it comes down to the size of your company, which is kind of a different rule. And uh, we're kind of on the tail end of the 50s to 70s. Now we're 70 and a half, so we're going to call that 70-ish. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about the required minimum distributions and when they kick in and how much they are. Why do you suppose it is so confusing? I think the rules confuse people. So the normal rule is, okay, we have to start. Basically what it is is the government forces you to withdraw money from your pre-tax retirement account so that they can get their tax revenue. And that happens in the year you turn 70 and a half. But theoretically, you can delay it until the next year. There's if you're born in the second half of the year. So it depends on wh what your month is when you turn 70 and a half. But for practical purposes, it's not usually a right. good idea because then you have to take two, like, that year. two required minimum distributions that year, which can cause your income to be substantially higher and move you into higher tax brackets and things like that. So um, I think that's why it confuses people. But at the simplest level, it's just know that, okay, in the year you turn 70 and a half, you're probably going to have to start withdrawing a certain you are going to have to start withdrawing a certain amount from your IRAs. Um, and then you usually your custodian will tell you what that amount is, but you just want to make sure that you don't forget it because the penalties are pretty steep. But the first year it amounts about 3.6% withdrawal rate. Now, and then there are some exceptions. If you're working for a company and you're still working at 70 and a half, and you don't own more than 5%, I think it's 5% threshold for ownership in the company. So in other words, you don't own the company, you're just an employee at 70 and a half, uh, and you have a 401k plan yep. that you, you're still active in, uh, you don't have to take required minimum distribution. So there are some little caveats there, but for most people, they're going to at 70 and a half, they're gonna start taking it. And the next year it increases a little bit and a little bit. But for the most part, it's a very sensible withdrawal strategy. It's not one that's gonna, that's likely going to have you depleted anytime soon, if at all, depending on your asset allocation. So uh, it's an important thing to be thinking about, and it's certainly integrated in every single financial plan. And I think for, for a good number of retirees, at age 70 and a half, you've probably already been taking distributions from your IRA anyway, unless you have such substantial assets outside that you didn't need to use the IRA money. So for many folks, Although, yes, you are required to take it, chances are you've already been taking it anyway, so it's probably not going to be eating into yet additional income sources showing up that you weren't originally taking. I think that's a fair point. So suppose you have uh, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand 500000 in a 401k plan that's now in, and maybe it's in an IRA plan, and you're drawing Social Security, and chances are for most people, they're looking at that bucket of money as not to delay it till I'm 70 and a half. It's, hey, I'm retired at 62 or 65. I'm trying to make the most out of this one life I get with the assets I have. And that's what you're saying. Then part of most financial plans are, okay, how much of this spending is going to be coming from your qualified retirement plans? Uh, so you're right. So for most people, uh, they will be it probably taking at least a re required minimum distribution by the time they're 70 and a half. Mm -hmm. And you can always just take the, the money after you've withheld taxes and put it in a different investment account in like a, just a normal brokerage account. I think sometimes people feel like, oh, I'm forced to withdraw this money and then they forget that, well, yeah, but you can just still leave it invested. It's unfortunate that you had for forced to pay taxes and you don't get tax deferred growth on that money anymore, but it's not like you're forced to spend that money or take it completely out of investing. Yeah, I think that confuses clients sometimes when they have been taking money from their IRA on a regular basis prior to 70 and a half. Sometimes they, they start thinking, oh good, now I'm going to get extra income from my IRA, but it's always integrated into the plan. Well, as you can see, there's a lot of things, and those are just a few of the things you have to think about when you're planning ahead for retirement. And the important thing is to get help if you need it. Don't be afraid to reach out to a financial advisor. Um, 
you know, these things need to be handled in advance if you're really plotting this out. And really, prior to your 50s, and we were talking about 50s to 70s, but really these are things you can start thinking about in your 30s and 40s because you also want to start planning on, hey, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, what is what is what are my options going to be? When do I get to control my schedule? Some people call that retirement. Uh, so these are all integra- integrated. Uh, if keeping track of all that stuff seems a little bit too overwhelming for people, well, that's where firms like ours, Rudy Wealth Management, comes in, and we're always happy to talk to people. Uh, we always have a no-cost initial consultation, just kind of like, hey, uh, here's my story, here's what I'm thinking about, uh, you know, and then we just listen, and we give them our thoughts on that initial meeting. And I think that's very helpful sometimes. And there's many times we can just take a lot of the confusion away and they can walk out and we've simplified their mind whether they do business with us or not uh i'm going to go back briefly david uh to someone you used to work with at dimensional fund advisors uh, gene fama and ken french gene fama is from the university of chicago and has a nobel prize uh and ken french is with uh, uh dartmouth university tuck school of business two of probably the most published people financial people maybe the two most cited financial people on the planet but with all this excitement, and of course, the news every day is bombarded with recession, recession, recession because of inverted yield curve. I thought it was interesting that finally some academics got up and said, well, is there a strategy to be made out of this from an investor standpoint? Does it make sense? And is it rewarding to basically reduce your exposure to stocks uh, with the idea that the return premiums are going to be lower in the next one, three, and five years? Is there a strategy to be made out of it? And pretty much this answer was a simple no. Isn't that pretty much what dominated? I mean, that's the, as soon as I saw that sentence, I kind of quit reading uh, because they're pretty credible authors. Right. I think, you know, anytime you hear something on the news or some sort of forecast or prediction by a pundit, you need to ask yourself, what does the evidence actually say? Because a lot of times people have their theories but there's no real evidence to support them or it's not good to act on you know what they're suggesting and in this case I'll read the exact wording was we found no evidence that inverted yield curves predict stocks will underperform treasury bills for forecast periods of 1 2 3 and 5 years in other words just because the yield curve is inverted right now doesn't mean stock returns are going to be negative or even worse than what treasury bills do over really almost any time frame you look at in the future. Does that surprise you, Fred? Or uh, just... Not really. It's, it's, it goes back to the question of market timing. We always talk about right. market timing not being a winning strategy. Uh, there's a, a economist joke, which is usually not very funny, but the, the joke is that this person is an expert. He, he predicted nine out of the last five recessions. <laughs> so uh, if, you were, if you were predicting twice as many recessions as actually occur, uh, you're going to make a lot of mistakes if you're trying to market time. But if I watch CNBC today, I'm not picking on them other than they're easy to pick on because it's just the constant negative broadcasting company. Uh, there'll be 12 pundits on today talking about the inverted yield curve, and that means we're going into a recession, and that means stocks are going to decline. And intuitively, it leads people down that same no. path of, well, wait a minute, that's the eighth guy or lady today that said <laughs> that stocks are going lower, I should sell my stocks. But <clears throat> it really ultimately is a market timing strategy. You have to have a you have to have a, a strategy to re-enter. And I presume at their study, though I haven't read it all the way through, they must have said, well, when it's inverted, we sell stocks, and when it becomes inverted again and long term, and it comes more normalized, we'll buy our stocks back. And turned out it was a losing proposition the vast majority of the time. Yeah, and so. someone may be obviously someone's going to be right sometime. Of course, if, if, like if, anything, if there are a thousand uh, predictors. Uh, Probably five are going to predict everything right for one time, but then the next time those five will probably not be. But what I find so fascinating is there's so much time spent on this, and nobody's ever gotten on there and said, well, wait wait, wait a minute, two of the smartest people on the planet studied this, and there's not a strategy or an investment policy to be made out of it, so we can just stop talking about it. But no, they won't do that because, you know, if it it bleeds, it leads, right? There are a million little things that never quite work, like the January effect, and I can't remember the what is it go away in May and whatever the yeah <laughs> those kind of things. And they they sound good, but they don't really work as a trading strategy. Well, finally, there was a, a Alliance for Lifetime Incomes 2009 Protected Lifetime Income Study. Well, it must be from an insurance company, I guess. But <laughs> anyway, says the vast majority of working Americans are at least somewhat anxious that their savings will run out during retirement. Uh, the top three barriers investing. Debt from credit cards, student loans, 
car loans and the feeling that retirement planning is too overwhelming. <laughs> that's another one. They think about 22% of the people. They think When you think about retirement planning, there's a lot of things that come together in it. But I think, you know, in some ways it's so simple, but in some ways there's a lot of complexity to it at the same time, which sounds strange, but there really are a lot of nuances and little quirky laws when it comes to retirement planning. Uh, so that doesn't surprise me. <clears throat> and even among respondents ages 55 to 74, the survey found that 57% hadn't calculated their monthly needs. Really common, isn't it, guys? When we, when a prospective client walks in or we've met maybe even a couple of times and we ask them, well, what do you think your monthly spend is? How to, you know, it's a rare beast that comes in and says, well, here's my, here's my budget for the last two years. Very few people can come probably within 20 or 25% of what they actually spend on a monthly basis. Sometimes we shortcut, shortcut that. We look at their tax return and we can say, well, your taxable income, you know, your after-tax income after your taxes was 52000 So, you know, you at least spent that because you didn't increase your savings by the end of the year. But it's, a, it's amazing how neglected it's such a big issue. You're going to spend probably three decades for people now in retirement. And it's amazing the lack of thought and planning that goes into it. I think people are intimidated to go to financial advisors, and they should not be. Well, I also think that a lot of people are out there that say, well, I'm just never going to retire. But I don't remember the exact statistics, but the vast, vast majority of people retire sooner than they were planning on, or even people who weren't planning on retiring. They get forced into retirement to care for a loved one. They have a disability. They get laid off and have a tough time going back to work. Um, there's a lot of reasons that force people into retirement. So you don't want to just bank on the fact that, that you'll be able to work forever. You want to kind of at least be somewhat prepared for that possibility of kind of being forced into retiring a little bit earlier. Well, 57% of the people haven't calculated what they need. There's no way that they have a plan that's going to, you know, if there's a gap, they don't even know that there's a, a savings gap. And, and, and that, to me, is kind of scary. It also explains why half the people on Social Security, it's 100% of their income, uh, amongst many other things. Sometimes it's just a tough draw in life, and you've had a pretty tough go of it. Well, guys, uh, appreciate you uh, joining me today. Fred, uh, always you been traveling? You're going to be here. You're, no. you're, you're, you're gonna be here next show? Yep. Good, because Fred's always traveling. Everybody wants, everybody, <laughs> literally, not everybody, but there's a lot of people around the country that like to have Fred around just because they like to know what he thinks. We're certainly in that camp. We're always delighted to have Dr. Fred Gertz on our show. Uh, I think it helps us immensely. And guys, well, we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.